0: This week's episode of Merge Conflict is brought to you by Syncfusion. You know Syncfusion, you love Syncfusion. I love Syncfusion because they deliver to you the most comprehensive UI toolkits for all of your favorite platforms. Whether you're developing web applications with JavaScript or ASP.NET Core, React or Angular, or mobile applications with Xamarin or UWP, or heck, even desktop applications with WinForms or WPF, they have everything that you simply need. I love them because when I go in to build an application, they have it all. They have data grids, charts, graphs, date pickers, combo box, buttons, all the things that I don't wanna build over and over again. Better yet, they have crazy, complex, amazing controls such as Kanban boards, these full spark lines, range navigators, maps, all the gauges that you could simply imagine. Now, what I do love though, is when you get a little bit deeper into the woods and you need to deal with file formats. They fully support Excel, PDF, Word, and PowerPoint. It's a simple drag-and-drop control into any of your applications. So where do you go to learn more? It's easy. Go to Syncfusion.com slash Merge Conflict to learn about all of their amazing charts, controls, and UI toolkits for all of the great platforms. Simply go to Syncfusion.com slash Merge Conflict. And thanks to Syncfusion for sponsoring this episode of Merge Conflict. Frank, I wanted to reflect a little bit about a past episode. Is that okay? Oh yeah, I don't think we do enough of it. Follow up. Let's do some follow up. Yeah, we're gonna do a little bit of follow up. Uh, yeah, you're right. We never reflect too much on the past because we're always moving forward. That's what I'd like <laughs> that's to say. right.
1: That's a good perspective.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I I thought a little bit uh, coming up. It's coming to the end of the year now, and right about mid year, so beginning of July we did an episode called uh, learning from our users, episode 104, one of my favorite episodes of all time, because you, Frank, finally learned the importance of mm-hmm. integrating crash reporting and analytics analytics into your apps to monitor some of your apps. And I thought it'd be cool if you could sort of reflect on these last six yeah. months and how that's been.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's, Been great, honestly. Um, It's been terrible in that I created a lot of work for myself, it turns out. Um, But I'll start at the beginning. Um, The experiment has gone well. A lot of people uh, are uploading their information, and I'm getting all the logs. The experiment went so well that I realized oh my God, this app crashes a lot more than I thought. Uh, It produces a lot more errors than I thought. It was nice living in the delusional world where. Uh, My feedback was support emails, so if people aren't complaining, I'm like, well, the app must be working perfectly. But then you get the cold, hard, objective truth from the logs, and it's depressing (laughs) at first. (laughs) Yeah. But um, I actually spent, what, pretty much the summer and early fall just bug bashing on iCircuit in particular, and it's been a great journey because... At first, I thought I fixed all the bugs and I did a release and I'm like, this one's bug free. And then I watched the numbers and I didn't do a dent. And so I had to oh, take no. a second pass at it. Yeah.
0: So you're sort of continuously learning and attempting to adjust over time. But have you, do you feel like your quality is getting better? Is it or is your are your users like giving you good feedback? Like, do you see oh, your star yeah. rating
1: up going up at all, too? Okay, so I've been a little bit too afraid to check the star rating. I did reset it, though. Like I would mentioned, I I was thinking about doing. So I'm hoping it's good now. Um, Just using that, um, well, primarily the objective logs say, yeah, uh, the app is doing so much better. I no longer have um, tons of sporadic crashes. The errors that I get, like soft crashes, exceptions that I catch, um, I pretty much have a good handle. I know why each one is happening. Uh, there aren't really any surprises anymore. In the beginning, it was just surprise after surprise. Like, how could that code be failing? That's impossible. Uh, but now that's all working. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun to
0: sort of see all the crazy logs and look at the code that you thought could never crash all of a sudden be yeah. super crashy. <laughs>
1: Oh, my God. Yeah, this is the delusional part. (laughs) I have unit tests for that. Of course, I can't crash. The the unit tests are 100% code coverage, right? Uh, Side topic, I finally did like a code coverage test on one of my libraries, I get 75%. You know oh. all those people they get like a hundred percent. I am not one of them.
0: <laughs> no, seventy five. That's great. That's a lot better is than it? me. So I can yeah, I think so. Okay, that's oh, good.
1: Thanks. <laughs> that's
0: good. Well, Frank, you know, well, you've had some time to reflect and give a little bit of a status update. You know, I wanted to do something special for you and for our listeners.
1: Ooh, I like special things. Um, is it Nintendo? Is everyone getting a Nintendo? No, no. I mean, there are a few Nintendo Switches going
0: out to some of my loved ones, but that's not <laughs> not the case for all of our listeners. Well, you Don't. know, I, you know, you you are an independent app app developer, and you make your living off of these applications, and they got to be the highest quality. So I figured I would bring in a good friend of mine onto the show uh, to help you out, Frank.
1: What? Okay. This is crazy. We never have people on. I'm excited. Okay. So I can, I can ask the questions about how do I get to zero bugs? Because I think it's impossible. So now we have an expert and he can answer that question. Yes. Yes. Correct. (laughs) Not only
0: can you get to zero bugs, but what else could you be possibly doing in your apps? Because there's probably a lot more than just analytics and crash reporting. So I did, I asked my good friend, John Daniel Trask, JD Trask, Um, who you may know, Frank, and some of our listeners may know. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, You may know him because he's the co-founder and CEO of Raygun, uh, which is an amazing company, which I'm sure he'll tell us a little bit about. Uh, But more, he's an expert in in this field. I mean, to be honest with you, not only does Raygun specialize in this stuff, but John JD himself, like really is an expert when it comes to ensuring that applications are the best performing ones out there. And a cool thing about him is that like while he is the co-founder and CEO of Raygun, which is awesome, like he's still a developer, which is why I wanted him to have him on Merge Conflict. You know, he's been selling commercial software. You know, since he was in high school, uh, he started coding at like nine years old. He's won tons of awards and accomplishments. He's awesome, uh, and I love him. So, um, JD, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're super excited. How was that intro? We you can tell we never <laughs> we never I, have I people not- on. <laughs>
1: I didn't know all those uh, credentials. This is amazing. I'm very excited. Now I want to ask you business questions.
2: (laughs) I'm happy to answer those too, but it kind of mildly offends my New Zealand humbleness. But um, yeah, that that guy sounds good. (laughs) Sounds like a good chap. Yeah, and
0: also we should say you're coming live from New Zealand, where I am sure
2: super delightful and not um, completely dark at 4 p.m. No, that's right. it's it's summer here, although uh, we have offices up in in Seattle, so I was there a couple of weeks ago. so I, I feel your pain. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh, good, good, good. <laughs> People I do need have, to know.
0: <laughs> I do have to say, and our listeners know that um, this has been one of the most delightful winters and falls that I have had in the seven years of living in Seattle. It is still 45 degrees and and not too rainy, so I cannot complain. Uh, fingers all crossed. They uh, I was on listening to the weather and they go, it's going to be completely dark and rainy for the next X days. They're like, we're going to just big O notation this and just forever. It's just going to go forever. And then the next day, no rain. And I was like, this is perfect. Thank you. <laughs> so, well, well you um, moved here. This is what yeah. you deserve. <laughs> this is what I get. Well, uh, JD. So, I mean, I did say a little bit about um your, you know, what you do, is there anything that I miss at a high level before we get into some of, um, how Frank can be doing a better job at making money?
2: Um, no, you, you did a pretty good Pretty good introduction there in terms of, yeah, so we do crash reporting and we do that across mobile, web, backend, we've got everything covered there. We do performance tracking um, against real users and how they're engaging with your software so we can tell you whether bits are slow, whether fast, whether falling off. And uh, more recently, we added a full application performance monitoring uh, product for folks that want to track what's uh, how their code is executing on the server and spot bottlenecks and things like that. So that that's our full offering, but uh, we certainly can can talk a whole lot about crash reporting since that's that's where we got our start as well.
0: Yeah, I'd be interesting I think Frank, what did you do and what are you seeing? I mean, at this level of just like you've introduced your a crash reporting framework into your app.
1: Yeah, I've actually had a interesting discussion with people on Twitter about um this idea of crashes versus soft errors and it's something that I think about a lot because um just coming from the early iOS days crashes are terrible the moment you start crashing you start getting those one star reviews and all that kind of stuff and so we had a nice discussion about catching errors and all of that stuff so my main objective has been to get my app down to zero crashes but still with the recognition that it's not going to be bug free it's it's still going to produce a bunch of errors i just want to handle all of those errors and i'm curious um JD, where do you fall on that spectrum? Are you the um, fail fast type or are you the catch
2: the soft errors and let's
1: just keep moving on and maybe degrade?
2: Yeah, um, I I'm a I'm a fan of trying to do the best you can to softly degrade. Um, and to your point about differentiating between crashes and soft errors as well, uh, one of the things we think is important is the percentage of users that have a crash-free experience. So you can kind of measure, okay, there might be more errors, but actually only this many people had like a fatal outcome here. Um, so that you can get a real idea of what what's the overall health of of my software. Um, I think you know. There's some really good uh, work pe- folks can do around exception handling these days. And it's up to the developer to identify exactly whether they can gracefully degrade and handle some of those things. And then we've also seen folks do some really crazy stuff, like uh, even try to record, uh, say, validation failures on forms um, that then don't get counted as either, but they can track, you know, hey, maybe one of these forms is uh, really difficult for people to fill out. As a, you know, in a way, you could think of that as an even softer form of an error.
1: Yeah, and that's almost a usability study too. If they're constantly putting in the wrong information into this text field, that does seem like something I want to know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, an example we had years ago is when we... Made a change, I think, and you'd notice that people would fill out the company field, and you'd see a password come through, or it was fairly oh, obviously no. a password, and you're like, okay, this field must be named something that matches a common password name, so we'll change that around. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was a, that was a website. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, those autofills. Whenever they don't work, you're like, darn you, autofill, you should have recognized <laughs> it. But when you tell a story like that, now I'm realizing maybe that's a good thing. It doesn't. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, you go down, I think I saw an article recently, and I know this a bit off topic, but um, it was that idea of creating hidden fields that, or at least not visible on the screen, that then can capture passwords when you submit um, for a site, you know, that. and it's that like, was so Ooh, scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, like the NPM uh, thing recently as well, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of stuff where I sit there for a minute and I'm like, Man, I keep thinking we're getting so advanced and then these are the the humbling reminders that we're we're actually kind of super dumb. Um, <laughs> so. oh, well,
1: it, it, I think it's more that people are clever. I think of it that way. Other people are always smarter than you, especially uh, those geniuses who are doing bitcoin mining by doing pr patches to open source projects you get free <laughs> compute time I'm like oh my god you're just so clever i never well, I really was, thought of that <laughs> I,
0: I that that ring that the ring that they found of the criminals that were um, generating millions upon millions of dollars for advertising uh, advertisements for mobile applications they were you know using machine learning and ai to simulate like application installs and usage of websites and like all of these oh, things right. and set up these bots and they were just bringing in tons and tons of money it was crazy it's, and it is because there there's a lot of evil and bad in the world but then there's a lot of just it's also that's really clever at the same time <laughs> so.
2: it always yeah. blows my mind though because i look at some of those things and i think you know hey i've built a few businesses. And this seems like just as much, if not more work than doing something legitimately. <laughs> no That's true. Kidding. Some of that software is pretty high quality. And I got to think about like
1: their issue tracker. I'm like, Oh, does that virus have like a bug list? Like, Oh gosh, <laughs> so much work. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, JD, you said something very uh, interesting that, that sort of stuck at my mind as you were kind of talking about crash reporting is you, you said the, the overall health of an application and that, struck me as, um, something that I didn't really think about. I, and I've been doing a lot of work inside of visual studio and we have this like health of my code. So as far as mm-hmm. how clean it is or best practices, but what does it mean when you say the health of my app? Like, what does that encompass to you?
2: Yeah, to me, I, I think about it as, um, in the view of the user. So like we touched on crashes are bad, you know, um, I kind of, and let, let me use an analogy. Let's say it was a McDonald's store, right? um and if i went in there and the store blew up i you know not many people would go to mcdonalds so that would be that would be poor um maybe they get the orders wrong sometimes so that's a more mild bug then you get the uh the performance of the app and and that's one of the things i'm really excited seeing for example what microsoft have been doing with uh, say .net core really making performance a cornerstone piece of this because uh in today's world we seem to be going backwards on the performance of software and it actually it annoys users sometimes more than uh software bugs right if things are just laggy and slow and don't seem to work it drives you bananas so again using the mcdonald's analogy that would be a case of kind of going well if i went in and i ordered my my big mac and it took four hours you know i'm not really going to go to Go to McDonald's anymore, um, and then the the last one, and this is a little bit more inward looking, but it p- impacts the customer performance. Is that idea of of measuring the way the code executes, say on a server? You can't do this on a phone at the moment without just doing a lot of low level instrumentation yourself, um, which is usually over the top. But on servers, we can track what the code's doing, database queries, and identify common patterns in the execution of the code that are leading to slower response times. Um, for example. It's not uncommon to see somebody build a piece of software. It's blazingly fast when they're loading off local host on their machine and that's all cool and they've got a little bit of test data. And then that customer comes along or user comes along that, say, loads a million items into the database and it doesn't work very well. It goes really, really slow and you want to understand what was actually happening on the other end. And so I look at all of those things as being components of building up the health of a piece of software. Um, An example of, say, an amazing piece of software would be Google search, right? It's super fast. I go there, it's not down. Um, you know, it does what it says on the tin. Uh, we're all good. Um, and and I guess going back to, to Frank's comment at the start, what blows my mind is how many folks... Uh, either are not measuring anything are unaware that they can measure anything um, or make the assumption that if they were to start measuring it that things would be great um, because our experience has been um, and similar to frank's uh, we found that uh, we built software before we built raygun and about only one percent of users would actually ever um tell us if there was an issue and so we had this other flawed view that there was very low number of issues in there um and then we started instrumenting our stuff with ray gun crash reporting and kind of were super embarrassed by that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that's an
1: interesting number i never would have guessed um i guess that one percent number always comes up one percent of people read your email one percent click on a link one percent turns out one percent only tell you about problems that's kind of scary
2: Yeah, well, and fortunately back when we were doing it, there wasn't a nap store for for those that were really annoyed to go and (laughs) (laughs) drop some bombs. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, this objective measuring it's like losing
1: weight. Like it's it's fun to convince yourself that you can lose weight, but until you start like measuring yourself on a scale, that's when things get serious and you actually try to do some real work or something.
2: But I guess Well, there's that saying, right? What gets measured gets managed and uh, Uh, very much applies in in this case of software quality. Yeah, yeah. I guess I was
1: always afraid of the privacy angle. I I just didn't want to collect information from users. I'm just kind of afraid of that. But I guess I just got a little more guts. I put in a proper privacy policy. I um, checked through every log to make sure I wasn't collecting anything personal. And I was very minimal in everything that I collected. And so I just kind of convinced myself, have you noticed other people um, are like me or am I kind of a weirdo? Yeah, and I'm I'm curious too. Like,
0: are there... (laughs) Are there like best practices around this? I mean, I've worked with a lot of, um, charities recently and I was like, oh, at least just, you know, here's the generic privacy policy, throw that up and that's good enough for Apple and and Google. But I mean, there, it seems like the industry doesn't really talk about best practices, but I mean, you have to be dealing with customers that are, have millions upon millions of users every day. So how does this, how does this really fall into the world of monitoring apps?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would probably at best estimate say that almost everybody in the Western world probably goes through Raygun systems maybe five, ten times a day. We've got a lot of very large customers um, tracking all sorts of things in there. Um, And one of the things that we've always taken the the privacy and security side of things really seriously from day one, um, because we kind of knew, hey, there's a lot of data flowing through here. Having said that, um, we typically try to make sure that we work towards defaulting to as um, low amount of personally identifiable or PII data as, as possible. So for example, a stack trace by itself yeah, is probably not going to out very much detail. Um, And then we built in controls to do filtering and things like that. So you could say, hey, and and you can do this from the SDK levels. So, you know, we're not going to collect a password if it accidentally comes through and it won't even be transmitted to us. It's not even done at the server side. We never see it, Uh, things like that. But the really big thing that's changed um, this year, earlier this year, was the uh, GDPR legislation coming into force in Europe that um, I'm I'm sure both of you have seen a little little bit of. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, that's what kind of gave me the confidence
1: uh, to go ahead with this because i saw all the work that people were going through to make sure that they were compliant and i was like okay that's a bit of work but i can handle that amount so it was actually because everyone else was thinking about it that i took a second look at
2: privacy mm. and
1: all that kind of stuff
2: yep and what's quite quite cool about that legislation is it means that they have to front foot telling you all of the systems your data is going to go into. So, you know, um, and you can sign agreements with with your customers. Um, uh, for example, most of our customers have what's called a, a DPA, uh, data privacy agreement with us. Um, and what that means is that we're agreeing to abide by these sets of rules and, and provide a certain uh, set of capabilities. So, for example, Um, if the customer chooses to, um, close their account, you know, we guarantee the data gets removed. If one of their customers or users wants to audit the data that they hold on them, we have to be able to export all of the data that we would hold on their behalf for them. Um, and similarly, if, if a user of one of our customers wanted to be completely forgotten, they can contact, uh, the the, the customer they pass it on to us and we have to guarantee that we can remove that as well as document a whole lot of um, how that data gets used and to be clear because we'd started out from day one being very privacy conscious not doing anything with with people's data um, this was quite easy for us to to fully implement Um, but and even though it's a european piece of legislation what's in a way um, if you're an international business you've you've got a kind of a comply anyway right um and so i'm kind of hoping to see that the places like the united states um sort of adopt similar legislation because i do think we need to be more mindful about um, our data that's going out there
1: yeah as an application developer i was rolling my eyes the entire time like oh god not more work but as a person as a user yeah obviously you you can appreciate it
2: yeah Um, absolutely well, it's your, your data, right? Um, the, the idea that just because you've put data somewhere, it's magically owned by somebody else is, frankly, bull**** in my view. Um, you know, it's my data. <laughs> Tell Facebook <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I feel like the stock market's subtly telling Facebook that. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> Uh, I want to I wanna go back to uh, what you talked about with performance. Was, do you have anything more about uh, privacy and security, James?
0: Uh, I mean, I think I, yeah, I, I was also about to go back to performance too, because what I was really interested in is it seemed that there was to be a distinguishing part where you were talking about what you can do on mobile and what you can do on server. And I was sort of interested because, you know, Frank and I were very heavy into the the mobile world and we do both do some web work Uh, i mean i do a little bit of asp.net core here and there and frank Mm -hmm. does some as well but i was very interested in the performance implications of adding these libraries or adding tracking and where people can fall over or if there's any implications really like what's the downside of or what can customers get caught up on when they integrate these things well,
2: the, the, the primary downside is embarrassment. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, how long? <laughs> <laughs> the mechanical uh, impact, though, and we'll start, we'll focus on mobile for a second. Um, we've put a lot of work, for example, into the crash reporting that when we initialize, all we're going to do is try and capture any events and store them to be sent later. So, we're trying to blo- um, not block that sort of initial time to load and then send things later. And we do things like uh, store data in um, isolated storage on the device to be sent later if the, if the app is busy, things like that, to try and make sure nothing's really going on. And that, and that overall means that you're really mostly incurring the cost of a, um, an event handler wire up at the very beginning onto some sort of global error event. Um, In the case of performance on mobile what we're doing is we typically swizzle the uh, view events and then we are adding as those things um, basically are loaded when you switch the view and when they're ready and we track those timings and again they kind of get queued up uh, to be sent when the app is or the phone is otherwise idle to be sent later to try and minimize any real impact uh, there. So on the, the mobile side, it's one of those things that usually takes about 10 minutes to get set up on both the crash reporting and performance side. So, And it's pretty low, low impact. Yeah, that, that's interesting uh,
1: that you say that, because um, I, I, I was curious how you were doing any of those measurements. I had a bad day once where I just felt like all my performance was terrible, and I actually did write a little script to instrument all my code and log every function call, do all that stuff, and I tried to do it as quickly as possible. And I quickly realized, oh my God, this is obviously something you could spend a year (laughs) and just fine tuning Mm -hmm. and making all this happen. And so that's why I use other people's libraries to do all this (laughs) stuff now. (laughs) I gave up on that. And so I appreciate that, uh, yeah, you you have to solve that problem.
2: (laughs) Well, and there's always more problems as the industry moves on, right? So like taking iOS, um, you know, when they added that, and you you folks will know the term here, um, but when they added that compilation that occurred on the server, so they could target different devices and shrink it all down. Um, what was it? Yeah, bit, that's something. That's bit code. Yeah, yeah. bit code. You had to actually change the whole approach you took at that point. Um, so having somebody else doing this work, but only costing you, say, you know, um, maybe a hundred bucks a month or something on a commercial license, um, we do it cheaper for personal ones. But, um, you know, why would you try and build that yourself? And I do think as engineers, we kind of have this terrible view that everything will take two weeks with a, with enough oh, yeah. Coca-Cola and pizza, um, you know, I, and it's I like wrote
1: my own. I wrote my own crash reporting website. So I was like, I can do this. It's just a database. It's a few graphs. No big deal. Yeah. So stupid.
2: Then you get one of our customers recently had a bad day and was generating uh, 26,000 exceptions per second uh, flowing through just for their app. And those sorts of things are fun challenges for our team to focus on. They're not the sort of thing that when it's a weekend project you want to be dealing with, though. Oh, lordy. Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) You don't throttle anything then, or maybe you do
2: throttle now, huh? Well, we joked at that point that uh, we have a a special tier of alerting, which is that the CEO of Raygun will call you up and tell you that your software (laughs) is (laughs) broken when it passes a certain threshold. Oh, no.
1: (laughs) Please catch.
0: (laughs) And and you can't tell, like, is it it good because your software is being used so much or is it bad because the CEO of a whole other company has to call you? So
2: uh, that's great. Well, actually, to Frank's point as well about being surprised at how many issues, that's a common one. I feel like the whole area of crash reporting and a lot of these monitoring tools, actually, I'll back it up a little bit. You know, We've got CI and CD now, and a lot of people are using that, and that's really cool. And I feel like the next stage really is the real-time feedback then of what we're deploying back to the team so that they can actually complete that circuit and Mm -hmm. run faster. Um, And so we do get a lot of people that are coming on board that have never used a crash reporting tool or a performance tracking tool or anything like that. Um, And they inevitably go to our pricing page, and they might go, oh, 250,000 errors a month. Gosh, there's no way we'd have more than that. And then, and then, yeah. and they, some of these are decent sized companies, right? And they put it in and they're like, holy moly, this is terrible. And it does get a bit awkward because some of them then don't want that uh, messaging to kind of go up the chain too far because it can be embarrassing. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that teams that really adopt a software quality mindset succeed way more than those that don't and using my mcdonald's analogy right if you were trying to build a product and you want it to get popular well you can kind of imagine how successful would mcdonald's have been if say every fourth burger was rancid right um mm-hmm. they wouldn't have gone very far if you take a quality mindset where you make sure that you have a consistent user experience every single time um that removes a massive impediment to your uh software success
1: yeah I I like what you said about closing that loop. I've um, often thought I just wish the IDE showed me which lines of code crash all the time Mm -hmm. just pull the logs off the server and just highlight that code in red and be like, fix this. This is broke. Make this better.
2: And to it a degree, so obvious. <laughs> yeah, well, Visual Studio has a technology built into it called uh, Code Lens. I think that we've got a prototype of integrating into that uh, internally to try and highlight some of that. But the, I think the challenge within the code editors is that you tend to be looking, for example, at a given file and you really kind of need a heat map of the solution yeah and be like show me the red areas so i can go and investigate those (laughs) Um, as well as then differentiating not just on the number of errors but the number of unique bugs because you can have something that happens a lot but uh, doesn't actually have a huge um, impact or you could have a lot of unique bugs in a particular class um, that sort of thing there's really interesting stuff you can do with that data
1: yeah but I just like the idea of shortening that feedback loop because we're we're going through that anyway. We have to run that filter in our head. There was yep. one um error that I kept logging that really wasn't an error. It was just bad user input, but that's fine. The the app catches it. It's it shows the right UI, so none of that really matters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but when you were talking about performance, I was also thinking um, are people measuring like execution performance or are they trying to measure more like usability performance where how long does it take to get through this login page uh how long you know any operation uh, operational length like ui length or is it actually we want to know if our code is fast or not
2: (sighs) Well, Raygun can do both. Um, So we have what's called a real user monitoring tool, and that's much more around the user experience side. It can highlight things that are poor performing, um, and, and in particular on the web, you know, you might have something like a humongous JPEG on your homepage that you forgot to compress, and you can see that, uh, in the waterfall of that view that, hey, everything's taking 40 seconds to fetch this file. Um, we could fix that. So it can it can certainly help that way. Um, and it'll also give you not just averages, but medians, P99s, P99, uh, sorry, P90s to understand the distribution of wait times. But then the the real magic that we, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of this, is uh, the application performance monitoring. And we'll touch on this a little bit about how it fits into mobile or doesn't um, in a moment. But we've we've been running that on our servers and we have customers running that. And what that's doing is it's kind of like running a profile of the entire time as efficiently as possible against your executing code. So, for example, um, you know, Frank, you could go and hit our website and browse around. And if you logged in, I could go and find that. And I could tell you literally how long every single method took to execute on that server Hmm. for your requests. I could see. That's fun. all of the ways the HTML, what parts of the page were taking um, a long time, how long you spent on those. Um, and then I can also see any of the errors. So I can see your whole journey. I can understand any of the faults, and I can see your user experience in terms of, of those load times where you had to wait. And ultimately, where you got annoyed enough to go off the website um, you know, <laughs> and try and solve for <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to be a
1: nerd and ask, is it a sampling profiler then, or are you just a, a really quick instrumenter?
2: um we basically have multiple modes that we can apply of for course. different performance scenarios <laughs> yeah so Very we generally product. Yeah. yeah we try to capture as much as we we can because I think there's too many tools out there these days that kind of give you a high level chart and not enough uh, trace data to actually diagnose things. Um, we kind of talk internally about the notion that you know you see a chart sort of either fall or suddenly shoot right up and you kind of know something's wrong. Um, but if you don't then have the actual raw execution trace information, um, that's when you're then floundering around. And to your point earlier about, hey, what we're trying to do here is speed up those cycles. You know, I want to be able to go, well, it went really slow. Now show me exactly what happened when it was going slow to figure out what piece. Um, and we had this actually as a, as a real world story uh, this week at Reg. One of our products uh, got quite slow at loading web pages. And um, we were trying to figure out why. And using the APM product, we could identify that a team uh, had deployed something totally unrelated to the product that was (laughs) slow. Uh, And what it was doing is it was exhausting the the Redis connection pool. So everything was queuing (laughs) up on that. But it was not really obvious if you were just trying to solve that in that product because we hadn't shipped any code changes since this occurred over there. Um, But being able to see under the hood, um, and it was immediately obvious that uh, everything was blocking on that that uh, connection pool.
1: No error there, right? So it's all just, it's performance. That's your only way to see that one, because you probably, Redis survived it because it just had a big connection pool. So that's an interesting one.
0: Correct, yep. Yeah, and I was kind of curious if you can talk, JD, a little bit, because it seems as if you've mentioned it a few times how Raygun is using Raygun itself to make a better product. Can you just talk about kind of an end-to-end? I'm very interested in re so, you know, when Frank and I go to integrate, you know, different services into our apps, like I, I like to think that we're real developers, but I also don't have millions of people hitting my mobile app at a given moment. So what I'm really curious about actually is like how does Raygun Use Raygun and learn from Raygun and monitor Raygun. And when is there a point where you're getting a phone call or a metric or something to actually um, to to hop in yourself into the code? You know what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I'd, I'd start by saying is that. Um, We do have, while we do monitor Raygun with itself, uh, which which is cool, we then also have a secondary kind of monitoring system that we actually did build internally ourselves because obviously if something was, say, critically wrong in the ingestion pipeline with a bug, then that bug would not get through to tell us that there was a bug. Right. Um, so there is a secondary piece in there that's like the, the the part that will really alert us if something's really, really wrong. But fundamentally, then we have, for example, the web app is instrumented in the front end with JavaScript to track all of the user experience as well as any front end errors. Um, similarly, all of the back end services. And so those flow in and then we integrate uh, with a lot of tools, but we use Slack internally. Um, and so we have channels per team where they can track to see anything new that's coming through. So they, we probably deploy the Raygun platform 10 or 20 times a day um, and those teams can see new issues that are coming in as they deploy. Uh, So there's that piece there. And then we have dashboards that are visible in the office because we have a custom dashboarding solution built into the product that shows things like sessions and load times and all of that. And they're just live in there. And, And I think they're important to have as information radiators. And then we have alerts triggering on those so that if they, for example, the response time got insane um outside of work hours um somebody we integrate with PagerDuty is it's going to ring up somebody on the on-call roster and tell them to take a look uh, in there and we also we we look at the apm log so our apm product uh, has built in uh, like a rules engine. So it identifies things like N plus one SQL issues um, automatically, and will generate um, issues, and we can then assign them to team members to go and look at. Um, and it'll also generate notifications, for example, if we were to introduce a new N plus one problem or any other type of issue that it can have in there. So those that information sort of flowing fairly consistently through uh, our Slack channels to the team. Um, they can weigh it up and see, hey, how important is this to get fixed either right now or is it, you know, go and talk to delivery manager and get this prioritized uh, maybe for a bit later. Um, the other thing that we that I think is not talked about enough, and, and I think Frank's going to really love this, is um, there is an element where you need to train these systems. Okay. Because you mentioned, you know, some of these bugs, like, you know, do I really need to? They fix this. An example we have is, you know, we have a a Twitter thing on the website. You know, people can follow us, and a lot of people run script blockers, and so when the script doesn't get loaded, the actual initialization code that Twitter gives you will fail, and that'll generate a JavaScript error. Mm. Well, I don't really want to have my team, you know, spending their time uh, working yeah. on that because it doesn't move the needle. So you can then flag that whole group because the errors get fingerprinted into unique bugs and say, look, I'm going to permanently ignore this. Like, I don't want to know about this anymore. It's not real. Um, It's not. And and that way it also suits the general OCD that I've noticed pretty much all of us developers have, that they want to have a clear list, (laughs) you know, to say get rid of these things Uh, Because I don't need them. Similarly, you know, you can build in filters to say, hey, if we get errors from this IP address, maybe I want to throw them away, which is useful, for example, if you're getting penetration tests run or something like that, where you know it's going to generate all sorts of weird crap. Um, Yeah, so lots of that stuff to try and help you slowly improve that signal to noise ratio.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't stand any lists that start out with uh, open issues, closed issues, and ignored issues. Like, I ignored them for a reason. I don't ever want to see these issues ever again. <laughs> yeah, <ever>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, I was curious about that. Um, uh, You mentioned the N plus one pattern matcher. For those who aren't aware, this comes up often when you're using uh, ORMs to access your database object relational mappers. Uh, You write some innocent looking code, and it turns out it has terrible database performance stuff. I knew there was software out there that could recognize those errors. It's just really interesting to me that um, you do it too. So I mean, just from logs too, that's tricky, but fun.
2: (laughs) yeah well i find i this is the thing i think there's a lot of great tools out there um when we were the the way we do product development at rate gun whenever we build any of these things so like apm is a is an existing market right um there's a bunch of tools out there we tend to build stuff without going and looking at what everybody else is doing we try and invent it all from the ground up from how we would like one of these products to work and then we start looking at the competitor products maybe two or three months before we launch Um, and it's always interesting where we're diverged and and i think some of those things like um, analyzing the data to actually almost act like the product is a as a full-time team member giving you recommendations i've always liked that and yet when we use other tools um and I won't name them because this pretty much applies to everybody, but we had like a server <laughs> monitoring tool in there. Um, and, you know, the thing is, is you run into this issue and suddenly the site's down and you're like, what's happened? And in this case, it's like, oh, the the C drives run out of disk space. And you sort of sit there and you're like, why, why wouldn't you just have a default that when the disk goes below 10%, you tell the customer that, you know, because I don't know any computer that's real happy with a primary disk out of space, like... Yeah. This is not a genius move. It's a really obvious move that no one seems to make. And that's one of the things that why we try really hard not to look at the competing products, because you end up where you naturally just start actually copying, even if it's subconsciously um, yeah. and building the same boring things. Yeah. I feel like
1: we have to have you back for a business episode, <laughs> a product design. <laughs> <episode>. <laughs> it's
0: true. It's, um, you know, I, I always have some people ask me like, Oh, what does a program manager do, especially at Microsoft? Right. And I, I have to, you know, I have to kind of say, well, you know, my, my goal is to work really hard with engineering and to work with our customers to build the best product for them. And, and the same time, you want to be, you don't always want to be a follower, right? Cause there's always things that people want that they're used to, cause they've used them for 10, 15 years. But is that really the best thing is going to move the needle or really make them productive? Because sometimes things that were developed 15, 20 years ago, and we're in our, in our set way of doing it, isn't necessarily the best thing to do in 2018 going into 2019. So you have to think about it a little bit different. So take that input, take the things that are going, but then also try to move, move it forward.
2: Absolutely. And similarly, the constraints keep moving. So like the APM space, um, I, I always say to folks like there's, there's a lot of good tools out there. The, the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of them were built in say 2007 and um, you know, I loved 2007, It's was a good year, but yeah, uh, good year. Good at year. the same time, the amount of compute resource, the clouds come along, you know, we can store, you know, petabytes of data a lot cheaper, all these sorts of things changed. And so if you were to just try and build the same thing now, you know, um, it, it, it makes no sense because there's so much more opportunity now to, to exploit the characteristics of, of right now. And similarly, then it becomes your job over the next, say, 10 years that in, in say, uh, 2028 or 2027, you know, that we have reinvented these products to take advantage of where we are then you know, and and I guess some of the buzzwords going around at the moment is you know what could we do in terms of machine learning over the top of some of this data to give better insights and things like that, um, and that's how you know you you got to keep disrupting yourself as they say. Yeah, I, I
1: immediately thought of the ML part. I don't think I have enough data for the ML, but I, I
2: imagine you have a lot of customers
1: with plenty of data.
2: <laughs> <The> <laughs> ML makes a
1: absolute perfect sense for them.
2: Yeah, but then you also get the side effect, though, like on the privacy thing where anything we do with that, we would want to make sure that we weren't inferring anything using other customer data. Mm-hmm. So smaller customers, how can we deliver value to them while um, obviously we could give lots of, lots of value to the really big customers um, because they have huge corpus of data. Um, yeah, so, so trying to balance that as well can be tricky.
0: Well, I, I, I don't know if... Uh... I have too many more questions in the world of, of this, but I'm I'm really curious. You know, we you've talked a little bit about the industry and and where it is, and you know, we we wanted to have you on not to talk about Raygun, but to talk about how av- literally Frank can make his app application better, leveraging these different services because <laughs> we're not experts. But I am curious, just in general, like what would be your sort of call to developers? Like, you know, they have heard now Raygun a little bit because you said that you're the CEO of the company, but like how does Raygun distinguish itself as a leader in the space? And why would developers go to raygun.com um, to go like investigate the products? Like what's your, you know, not a pitch per se, but like what's, but why? Yeah.
2: Well, I'd start off first by saying... Um, you're right. It's not a pitch because what I wish as a user of a lot of software is that everybody actually put something in. Because what you don't know is how bad a lot of the software actually is, um, and so it's it's going to save you a lot of time and it's going to make your customers really happy. Uh, and I don't care really who you choose to use uh, in there. Um, to that to that end, I would I would flag that if you're talking about um, most of these tools these days, uh, you know are really quick to get set up. I can't tell you how often I hear people say, I just haven't had time to set it up. And it's like, it will take you five to 10 minutes. You know, you can do extra instrumentation later once you just see the value, but it really doesn't take very long to get started. Usually it's like in .NET land, it would be a new get package and a couple of lines in your config file and you're pretty much done, right? You could do this in minutes. Then um, secondly is using the data that's coming through, whether it's performance or, or bugs, and actually, having those conversations with your team. So whether you've got agile processes uh, where you're, you know, coming together to discuss these things, or, or however you build your software, get it out on the table because it's just it's it's a fact. It shouldn't be the embarrassment that it is mm. um, to say, hey, we've got all these things. Secondly, uh, and I don't know um, how your your tool does this, Frank, but uh, we always say to people um, the best things to do is ignore the number of of issues and in Raygun especially, you can actually sort by the number of impacted users. So you might actually have a lower count of a particular bug, but it's affected more of your users. So think about it in terms of the human impact. And I often largely think about these products as that. They're about how do you make software better for humans? Because that's that's who we build all our software for. Even when we talk IoT, backend services, all of them they are here to be slaves to humans, right? It's as simple as that. Um, and so the human factor is really important. Um, so, so vote towards what's going to have the biggest impact on the most number of users uh, possible. Because you, you're, you're on a treadmill here. If you're, if you're shipping frequently, the reality is you're very unlikely to ever get to zero bugs. Um, but if you can get down to, say, hey, 0.1% of uh, users actually have an issue, that's a, that's a pretty good place to be because some of those issues that you will struggle to resolve are environmental. In um, fact, to that point, and I know we're wrapping up, but you you folks might enjoy this, but we, we actually ran into this a bunch with our Android provider at one point, which was we couldn't figure out why there were some crashes actually coming out of our SDK. And we dug and we dug and we dug and we looked at all the docs. And what we found was that... Um, Uh, Some of the cheaper Android phones coming out of Asia, they've actually hacked up Android enough to try and lower the resource usage, Mm. that the docs on how it operates are totally different to how these devices actually operated. And so our expectation that, say, this event will always have this parameter, nope. <laughs> it, would, it would blow up. So that's the thing. You'll never get it to zero, but it's best to just be um, you know, upfront and transparent as a team about how do we make sure we we have happier users.
0: Yeah, I think you made a great point in general. And this is probably what Frank is gonna say, but you, we shouldn't be ashamed that there are crashes. And what we should be ashamed of is if there's crashes and we don't know about them, because then we can't fix them. Mm-hmm. If you don't know it, you can't fix it. And and you need a, a benchmark, right? So even if your software's been out for years, like Frank's was out for years upon years, I'm not trying to shame him, but he has to have a benchmark, right? Is his, is his application crashing for yeah, one percent of his users, five percent of his users, or is it this one user that has an iPad two? that won't give it up and his software continues to crash on it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like, that's what you need to know is, is you could have a crash happening a thousand times, but to one person. Now that person's going to be very mm-hmm. upset, but at the same time, you know, the rest of your users seem to be okay. So you have to have that benchmark. I think is one thing that I've learned over the years, but yet also like don't shame your team members. I was in a, a, uh, what was I saying? I was in a, a keynote with Donovan Brown, who's a, one of our PMs mm-hmm. of DevOps. And he was talking about how Azure DevOps builds Azure DevOps and how they monitor Azure DevOps all together, you know, and engineering and PM work together to monitor performance and monitor just crashes and, and things that are going wrong. And they go, you know, everybody owns it together. It's not one person's fault. It's not engineering's fault. It's not, you know, it's, it's we're, we're in this together because we want the quality to go out for all of our users. And I think that's kind of a, a t- takeaway that I had is don't be ashamed and we can make it better, but we have to start by, by putting something in the software. <laughs> so
2: yeah, Easier no, that's been done. The, well, well you say that, but this is the other one is that is I talk to a lot of engineers who are a little bit afraid to actually go and say, Hey, I'd like to put this in cause look, everything kind of appears to be on fire. Um, <laughs> All all I would recommend on that is that one, that's a fact. And if you can frame the value proposition when you're talking to some sort of upper management or or whatever, talk about the customers. Those people, typically they are going to be somehow comped on You know getting more users happier users you know whatever more revenue out of them well you're not going to get any of that if the software is poor performing and so forget about the numbers and just start talking about trying to make the software better for the customer and uh and it's a it's a different conversation that'll be well received that hey one of our engineers is really into this um and that's exactly what i want to be into so let's solve this together
1: (laughs) we've moved a little bit beyond it but um You're absolutely right about that. um, Tracking the number of users that are affected by the bug versus Mm -hmm. the number of occurrences. I learned that lesson early on. I I was doing all my sorting wrong and I was working on these very esoteric bugs. And it's so interesting, those bugs that only one person hits, they really are esoteric. You had a good word for it. You called it um, environmental. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like it is that. I'm like, is the os having a bad day like why is that code crashing i've you know there's there's no reason for that code to crash it works a million percent of the time otherwise and so those are bad and yes james you are right that's usually an ipad too yeah there always is
0: or some (laughs) xiaomi android uh, you know tablet of some sort there's some some random huawei device out there that is always causing me pain and issues yes
1: you can't get to zero bugs. And I think uh, um, as the OCD completionist, that was a hard thing to reckon. You can actually ignore a lot. So that helps. <laughs> and then They don't appear there. But um, getting to a true zero bugs, I think that um, modern software is a giant machine with a billion moving little cogs. And the way we write things is if a little cog is out of place, the whole thing comes crashing down. So oh, that's my long way of saying I don't think we can get to zero bugs. <laughs>
2: I'd agree <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I
1: have one tough question left to go. Um, you, I think James mentioned I think that you're still programming these days, so I wanted to quiz you. Uh, what's your favorite language? What platform are you on? Uh, what are you up to? I'm curious.
2: Yeah, so I I mean I can program in a bunch of different, languages but my favorite um really is c-sharp and uh i've been really really digging um net core uh, in particular i was really excited to see uh 2.2 shipping this week as well as the the preview for um actually last week and and three uh the preview of three coming out um i really you can probably tell given i've kind of built a whole company around it that i really like performance um and so (laughs) I've been loving the whole open source um, side of it. I love following a bunch of people on on, uh, on, on Twitter um, that are sort of posting about these low-level optimizations and things like that, um, because it just, it it gets me excited. I, I get annoyed when I think, you know, my PC was so fast in 1994, you know, like, what, yeah. uh, what's going on now? <laughs> like, <laughs> you so, mentioned, you mentioned.
1: Yeah. Degrading over time. I had that same problem. It's the iPad 2 problem. Somehow they get slower every year, even though the device is sitting on the shelf. Like, how are you slower this year? It's impossible. But um, I took that as kind of a personal challenge. Like, can I get my software to still run fast on this stupid Hmm. thing that keeps slowing down? Yeah,
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I see that a lot actually with game developers, where they'll often buy a machine like at the start of building a new game. And it's they they have to stay on that machine for the whole thing because it's kind of like, (laughs) well, you know, if I keep upgrading to the latest and greatest, I'm not actually testing it even remotely near where my users would be um, as well. So Obviously, if you build it and it's fast on an iPad 2, it's going to be stonkingly fast on an iPad Pro. Um, oh, yeah, that's uh, the wonderful thing. Huh? If you can
1: get that up to 60 frames a second, that 120 <laughs> frames a second is going to be so butter.
0: <laughs> yep, that's true. Well, I have one more question for you before we let you go. We ask all of our guests, which are not very many, but we always ask them, hey, you know, there's a lot of amazing open source projects and libraries out there. What is something that that you know or maybe one of your favorites that you think is kind of getting overlooked and why should people care about it?
2: Yeah, um, one of the ones that we've been uh, using a bunch recently at Raygun is an open source uh, library called um, Storybook. Um, you may or may not be aware of it, um, but it allows you to build these interactive UI components, effectively the components that we use in our web app um, and our apps built in, in uh, React for the most part. And so you take the widgets and the components um, in there and you can define the different ways that they are uh, interacted with um, and basically use that for testing. So you can quickly open up your storybook um, and actually uh, sort of look at the various components and ensure that uh, they're working as they should and, and test them out and um, check the code and all that sort of stuff. So um, I'll pass you the the link to this so you can maybe put it on the website afterwards, but it's all open source. Um, and on GitHub as is uh, github.com forward slash storybooks slash storybook. Very Cool. Oh,
1: cool. It- Is that mostly a testing tool, or are you also defining your UI in it?
2: What we've done is we've taken the UI that we've already built in the app, and we've been pulling out those components and putting them in there so that the team can then have a look at them. I assume some people may very well like to be building them up in there first and taking them over, Mm -hmm. but um, that's not the way we've done it. Um, And uh, to be clear, I'm not a a personal heavy user of that. I've just seen the team using it Mm -hmm. and think it's very, very cool.
0: Cool. yeah very cool I'm looking at the website right now it seems pretty interesting to be honest with you I'm, I'm gonna take a look at this myself Oh, that's why we love doing <laughs> Don't this. Don't be too shocked, James. Oh, my God, that's always so cool. You know these <laughs> these React, View, Angular people out there always coming up with cool, innovative things. Always. <laughs> well, uh, JD, thank you for for coming on uh, and and telling uh, telling us how to make our apps better and helping uh, Frank make more money. Hopefully, at uh, we'll do a recap next year, maybe, and see what what he's learned in, in 2019 to see if he can generate more money by making his uh, users <laughs> happier at the end of the day. That's what it's all about. Well, J.D., where can people find you on the internet?
2: Um, well, firstly, they can find Raygun at um, raygun.com, R-A-Y-G-U-N. I hear Americans hear me saying Reagan like the former president, so <laughs> just got to spell it out. Um, and, but me, I, I use Twitter uh, a lot, um, so I'm T R A S K T-R-A-S-K-J-D on Twitter. Um, And I post about random stuff, whether it's business coding, um, occasionally, you know, you can't not have a fight on there, but otherwise,
0: yeah, follow me on there. Beautiful. Well, of course, I want to thank everyone for tuning in this week. You can find us everywhere on the internet at mergeconflict.fm is our website. You can, of course, lead us feedback on any single episode. You can rate, subscribe on your favorite podcast application. Find me at James Montemagno, Frank at Proclarum, and of course the podcast at mergeconflictfm on Twitter. We love Twitter. It's everywhere. Well, JD, thank you again for coming on. It's an honor and a privilege. And that's going to do it for this week's Merge Conflicts. Until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace.